Thank you for joining us today for this event about how the 118th Congress can continue its important and vital support to Ukraine's national defense. I'm Luke Coffey, and I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And for many of you who watch Hudson Institute events, you'll notice that we are not at the Hudson Institute today. Instead, we have graciously been uh, welcomed by the office of Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Perhaps there's no better person than Congressman Moulton to discuss this issue today. He has been one of the uh, staunchest defenders of the U.S. aid and assistance to Ukraine. He has visited Ukraine since uh, Russia's large-scale invasion uh, in February of last year. And of course, he sits on the Influential Armed Services Committee. On top of that, he has real life experience, having served in the U.S. Marines, uh, including four tours of duty in Iraq. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be back at the Hudson Institute, even great. though we're not at the Hudson Institute. <laughs> great. Well, thanks for having us in your office on such a busy day. So you were in Ukraine uh, in December of 2021, uh, I believe, or at least right before That's the right. large-scale invasion. Yeah. And uh, at that time, you were warning people that this is happening. You know, a, a nation like Russia doesn't mobilize such a large percentage of its ground forces around another country without wanting to do something. You were warning us about this. Uh, we saw what happened on February 24th of uh, 2022, and you uh, were in Ukraine again in December. Uh, so obviously a lot had changed since then. Can you give us uh, your take on how things are going in Ukraine, how the war is progressing, and what you saw when you were on the ground there uh, over the winter? Sure. Well, I think uh, overall it's going really well. But before we kind of get to that conclusion, let's step back to December 2021. Uh, when I went over there, we had just gotten briefed in Congress about a month before uh, about the intelligence of the seriousness of the, the Russian uh, um, you know, massing of forces and, and some, of their, some of our assessments of their intent. Uh, but hardly anyone was visiting Ukraine at the time. Uh, yes. This was actually a pre-planned uh, CODEL. Uh, to look at some uh, special operations issues because we have some um, um, some soft in the country. I just jumped on when I said, okay, this is, this is going to be a real story. And when I got there on the ground, I found a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there were uh, varying assessments as to whether or not Russia would actually invade. They, we, everyone agreed they would probably do something, but the majority of people, both Ukrainians and Americans that we spoke with on the ground, thought it would be a continuation of the incursions in the East, not a full-scale invasion. There are other people who thought that there really wouldn't be anything at all. Uh, I put my, you know, second Lieutenant Moulton uh, hat on and looked at where the forces were arrayed, and I said, I, I don't think they're going to invade for the East. I think they're going to come for from for Kiev. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I would be worried about. Um, of course, that turned out to be exactly what happened, but it's important to understand that that wasn't the assessment at the time. Another question we ask is how resilient will the Ukrainians be? How willing are they to fight? And even from the Ukrainians, I got a pretty mixed view. There were people who were pretty just pessimistic about at the end of the day, uh, would a large body of the population stand up and resist the Russian invasion? I think the general assessment was that if they conducted a full invasion, Kyiv would fall quickly, but there would be partisan warfare. But even then, they weren't really prepared for that. They had only just passed a law to establish a National Guard. There were a lot of things yeah. uh, that made us think that Ukraine was behind. So now, a year later, we went back and 
uh, December of 2022. And, and there's, no, there, there's no disagreement about everything. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone is united. The, the city, the country are remarkably resilient to, the, to be the envy of the world in that regard. And of course, they are actually winning this war against Russia. It's a brutal, hard slog. Uh, the front lines have gone back and forth several times. Uh, but it's my assessment, uh, shared by, I think, most people who are looking at this on the ground, uh, that Ukraine is winning. Now, that doesn't mean that they will win. That doesn't mean that um, they can do this on their own. That doesn't mean that we can pull back in our support. Far from it. Uh, but overall, I've been impressed by how resilient they are, um, how well they're doing on the ground, and how completely united the country is, which is, which is, which is quite different from what we saw uh, a few months before the invasion kicked off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've been visiting Ukraine myself over the years, and I was there in uh, last November, and, and like you, I was struck by the resiliency of the society. I always knew that if, you know, if, if attacked again on a major scale, you know, the Ukrainians would fight. But like, like many, I was shocked by just how determined and resilient this whole, the whole society yeah. became. I and mean, I, going around Kyiv uh, in December of, of last year, just a few months ago, was remarkably the same as going around Kyiv uh, before. So we yeah. took the overnight train, like the president, uh, and uh, and got there you know bright and early in the morning and went straight to a hotel uh, to get breakfast. And I thought, okay, well, you know, they're going to have us in some bunker. Uh, no, we were just in a regular old hotel. Uh, so they will at least put us at the back of the room. No, I had a really nice expansive view from the big glass windows in my yeah. room. And then they said, well, we're going to have a breakfast buffet. I said, well, this is going to be a pretty sparse breakfast buffet in a, in a war-torn country. And, I mean, they had every tropical fruit under the sun. So yeah. it's really and, and the traffic, for me, uh, I, I thought I was going to arrive to a Kiev with uh, little or minimal traffic compared to what, right. what it was like during right. peacetime. And, no, there's plenty of traffic. People are going about their daily lives uh, living their lives and knowing that um, you know this is their moment in their history to uh, to defend themselves. Now, keeping your second lieutenant molten hat on, uh, what do you think about this year, 2023? What are things that we should be watching? What are things we should be uh, expecting, both from the the Russian side and also the Ukrainian side? Of course, it's impossible to predict these things. But uh, you, based off your experiences and what you know in general terms, what are things we should be watching? Well, I think there's a lot that we should be uh, watching at the strategic level. But you asked for my view as Second Lieutenant Moulton, who is not a not a general <laughs> officer. Uh, well, Second not, Lieutenant Moulton uh, predicted the advance on Kiev. Well, but that's <laughs> but that's because I was looking at basic on the ground tactics. So let me start there uh, with sort of what I expect at the at the tactical level and some things to be to be thinking about. Uh, the first is that there's going to be a lot of people talking about F-16s and fancy yeah. weapon systems like that. That's not what's going to win this war, um, again, in my yeah. lieutenant assessment. Uh, what we need is art is ammunition. Yeah. We need uh, yeah. artillery rounds. Um, 155. More than anything. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, and, and actually, it's 155 for our our weapon system, but there's still a lot of yeah. uh, Soviet air weapons that yeah. the, uh, the Ukrainians are employing. We need to figure out how to get that, which is harder. We don't make... Yeah you know, uh, uh, Soviet uh, uh, size rounds. So we got to do a lot of work in that department. And that's not easy, right? Uh, in some ways, it's easier to just transfer them some F-16s we have lying around than stand up ammunition plants or buy uh, Soviet rounds in random places across Europe to meet this need. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's really important. The yeah. second is that if you look at how the fighting has, has 
transpired on the ground. And you can see this uh, with all this, uh, the brutal warfare that's going on around Bakhmut today. Uh, it really is a very traditional Soviet-style force-on-force, World War I-like trench warfare. Yeah. And the way to beat that is what the Germans did in World War II, a tactic called maneuver warfare that we have adopted, but that the Ukrainians are not trained in. And so if we just want to fight this war of attrition, um, it's going to be pretty brutal. But if we want to actually see some breakthroughs when it's the Ukrainians' turn to have an offensive, they have to adapt to this new type of fighting called maneuver warfare, where it's not just about force-on-force -force attrition. It's about firing, uh, fixing your enemy, moving. Uh, and, and the Ukrainians really aren't doing that yet. It's a huge opportunity. Um, because they're holding their own against the Russian offensive if they can turn around and have their own offensive but actually use better tactics then they could really make some serious territorial gains and I think that's where the the training comes in on the new weapons systems and platforms we're giving to Ukraine like Stryker and Bradley and and Abrams to it's just like handing over a piece of kit and teaching the crews how to maintain it and the operators how to to operate it but it's uh, implementing it into their doctrine and, and right. That yeah, so I, I think that's right, but there is a distinction, right? If we just train them how to, you know, start up and use a striker and fire the weapon systems, that's one thing. If we actually, you know, at these bases in in Germany where we're doing this training, if we're actually getting whole units to use these tools in maneuver warfare, that's a totally different ballgame. And I know that's what. Uh, our army trainers are working on right now. That's certainly their goal. Yeah. Whether or not the Ukrainians can actually ad adopt it when push comes to shove, where the where the rubber meets the road on the front under fire, you know, that's another that's another question. Yeah, of course, Ukraine is on the front foot after two successful counterattacks late last year, and uh, around Kharkiv and Kherson, and uh, Russia allegedly is in the uh, final stages, or maybe it has already completed its. Uh, first round of mobilization. So they feel like that they uh, can get the momentum back. So I think it's clear that 2023 is not going to be a year of, of peace. Uh, both sides still think yeah. that they uh, they can win. And it's going to, you know, we have to really start, um, you know, conditioning ourselves into understanding that uh, this could be a war that's measured in years. How do you think uh, U.S. society, Western society is geared in terms of this line of thinking, that this is something that could require a commitment for a significant amount of time? Well, I, th I think there's certainly some concern around that. Now, uh, the picture in Congress is quite united and bipartisan. So yep. although you hear, uh, you know, the far right, the Tucker Carlson uh, crowd, uh, also represented by some members of Congress, um, essentially wanting to side with Putin, I mean, that's how extreme um, yep. the far right has become. The vast majority of Republicans are aligned with the vast majority of Democrats on wanting to support Ukraine and recognizing um, the serious threats to our own national security if we don't see Ukraine through to victory. But there's no question that, I mean, pretty much as with any war, uh, there's a risk that uh, public support can erode over time. But I think there are some other risks with having this drag out too much. You know. Uh, at the end of the day, Russia has a much bigger population than Ukraine. So although Ukraine is invested in this fight, they're uh, clearly uh, more tenacious on the ground and they have our support. Uh, we don't really want to get into a numbers game um, where we're counting on, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Ukrainians killing 
so many more Russians that they yeah. can actually win this fight against a bigger foe. Obviously, the perhaps more important point is that every day that this war drags on, more people are dying who shouldn't be dying, right? I mean, this is a total war of choice. It could end tonight yep. if one thing happens, yep. which is Putin pulls out of Ukraine. It's that yep. simple, right? Yep. It's, his, it, it, it's his invasion. So I don't think it's a good thing for us to have a strategy that means the war is going to go on for a long time. Um, but I also think you're right. We're not close to peace right now. The yeah. two sides are way too far apart. The way to close that negotiation gap, so you might at least be in the same ballpark to talk about terms of a settlement, is for Ukraine to take back more of their own territory from Russia. Exactly. The fastest way to, uh, to end this war is to give the Ukrainians what they need to win. We have to start wanting the Ukrainians to, to win more than we just hope that Russia is going to lose. And I think we're slowly getting there. Uh, but we're not quite there yet, but we are heading in the right direction. On, the, uh, on, on, on some of your colleagues and some of the commentators who are against U.S. support to Ukraine, I actually think they are um, you know, out of touch with uh, your, your average American. I, I travel quite a bit uh, across the country, and I see Ukrainian flags flying in, you know, in places so remote you don't even have a cell phone signal, right? Uh, so in the Midwest up in New England, um, out in rural Virginia when I'm fly fishing, I see Ukrainian flags. So what does Congress you know, need to do and what does the White House need to do to explain to the American people, people um, you know, why this commitment is so important and why it's in our interest to continue it? Well, first of all, you're right. There is widespread uh, support uh, for the Ukrainian cause in America. I mean, there's a lot of Americans who see the best of ourselves and our values in these Ukrainians fighting for their freedom, fighting for their democracy. Having said that, the polling shows that support is down, yeah. that 9% uh, of Republicans used to be opposed to uh, giving more support to Ukraine. Now it's over 40%. I mean, that's the effect of the far right, the Tucker Carlson uh, of the world and that rhetoric coming out of um, places like Fox News. So it is eroding. And one of the first things I do when I'm asked these questions is I acknowledge the fact that, you know, asking a question like, how much money are we going to give to Ukraine? How long is this going to take? How many more people are going to die? Those are legitimate questions. Yeah. Those are totally fair questions. I mean, we should all be asking yeah. those questions, right? So let's They're start there. They're also difficult there. to answer. And they are difficult yeah. to answer. So, so let's start there. These are legitimate questions that, that many Americans are asking. Now, if you're just uh, repeating questions, uh, Kremlin talking points, uh, like Carlson often does on Fox News, that's a different story. Yeah. Those are not legitimate <laughs> questions. Yeah. But, um, but these questions that many people are asking, including folks on both sides of the aisle, uh, are legitimate. And I think the answers, there's, there's three primary answers um, that I give to people for why this fight is so important. Number one, it prevents Americans from dying in Europe because we've learned that Putin will not stop yeah. Wherever we think he will, he's going to go somewhere next. And his next stop after Ukraine could very well be a NATO ally. That means Americans are fighting and dying in a ground war in Europe. We don't want that to happen. Yeah. Number two, autocrats across the world are watching, uh, namely Xi Jinping yeah. in China. If we don't want Americans fighting and dying in the Pacific, where we absolutely want to avoid war with China, then showing that we're united and strong on Ukraine and we're going to make sure democracy wins in Ukraine sends an incredibly powerful uh, message 
to Xi uh, with respect to his territorial ambitions to take over Taiwan. And then the third thing is a, is a little bit more nuanced, but I think it's really important. This is really the first time in history uh, that someone has used nuclear weapons in a real offensive way. Now, nukes are terrible inventions um, in, 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 by many respects. Um, but the fact that we have had this balance of power with the Soviet Union and then Russia uh, over the last uh, 70 plus years has in, in many ways helped ensure the peace. Uh, but that is a defensive use of nuclear weapons. We have no intent of taking out the Soviet Union or taking out Russia. Uh, they just know that if they try to take out us, uh, they're going to get the same thing in return. But Putin is using the offensive threat of his mm -hmm. nuclear arsenal to aid his illegal aggressive war. That is a precedent that's very dangerous for the future of peace and the future of humanity, frankly. So we've got to make it very clear you're not going to do that. So I don't think, I don't think the Chinese military planners, when they're looking at taking over Taiwan, have in the past really said, okay, we're gonna th threaten the use of tactical nukes as a part of our strategy because it's just generally accepted you don't do that. Yeah. But they may be looking at that now. And that's why a third reason why it's so important when we think about the world that we're gonna hand over to our kids and our grandkids, it's so important that we win this war and say to the world, you're not gonna do that. And when Ukraine regained its independence in 1991, of course it had it inherited one of the largest nuclear stockpiles at the time in the world. And uh, through um, the uh, Budapest Memorandum, uh, they agreed to hand these weapons uh, back to Russia. So in exchange for Russia never exactly Ukraine, respecting right? Ukraine's borders and territorial integrity. Right. So there must be many countries around the world who either have nuclear weapons or, or thinking about it that will probably never give them up if they already have them or try to get them if they want them because they know that when you do hand over these weapons, uh, you could end up like Ukraine. That's right. The, the danger of nuclear proliferation coming out of this war is yeah. exceedingly high. It's not something that we're thinking about a lot. And the way to reduce that danger is to win the war for the yeah. good guys, yeah. for Ukraine, and to show the world um, that not only, you know, if you're counting on the United States for a nuclear deterrent, we're going to show up, yeah. right? That's a really important message. And of course, the flip side of it is that if you're trying to use your nukes to take over another country, you're not going to get away with it. Yeah, the, I'm glad you brought that up, Congressman, because you're right. The, the, the nuclear proliferation angle of this war is something that just doesn't get that much attention. So yeah. it's good that you, you raise that. Um, so going back to... Uh, we already mentioned F-16s and we touched on, you know, strikers and Abrams and, and whatnot. Uh, these are all uh, specific weapon systems that offer a certain capability for the battlefield. Uh, to give praise where praise is due, the Biden administration has done a lot in this area. I mean, just think about what we were talking about yeah. this time last year. We're still talking about javelins. Now right. we're talking about main battle tanks. But I also feel like... Um, we could be doing more and we could be doing it faster. Uh, what do you think that the Ukrainians uh, need and what should our strategy and approach be when it comes to working with our allies to give the Ukrainians the tools to, to win, not just to survive? So first of all, you know, everyone should know that you're talking to someone who's a Democrat, not afraid to be critical of the administration. And uh, after my, my trip uh, in December of 2021, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, quite critical of what we were doing to date 
um, to deter and prevent a war with Ukraine. And I fundamentally was saying we could do more. Yeah. And then in the early days of the conflict, uh, I was one of several voices in Congress saying we need to do more, we need to do it faster. Uh, I think there have been a lot of examples of places where the administration could do things a little bit more quickly. But actually, I don't think that it's fair to criticize them for, for not doing enough. I think that they've been very successfully walking this line between getting Ukraine what they need to win. And that has absolutely been the stated strategy for a long time. Not in the, like, the first couple weeks, admittedly, that's true. But since that very early time, it's been very clear from Congress and from the administration um, in closed-door conversations that we've had that everybody's strategy is to ensure that Ukraine wins. And to do that, the, you, the administration has been walking this line between getting them what they need to win, but also not you know, tipping this over into, uh, into you know, escalating into a NATO on Russia war. But there are a lot of other factors to consider here too, right? Um, there are a lot of times when we want to get them more quickly and we just don't have it all ready, right? Yeah. There are a lot of times when we want to deliver weapon systems to them that are not approved for export, not because of just bureaucracy, but because of very good reasons why we want to protect our sensitive technology. Um, there, are there are cases where we want to make sure that we just have all the, the, the things that we need ourselves to meet our readiness needs and, and concerns. Um, and so we're careful about exactly how much we give uh, to the Ukrainians before we can ramp up production or, or whatnot. So, uh, so I actually, I think that, yes, it's fair to say there are times when we could have moved more quickly. For example, I was in, uh, 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 over in Europe, we met with uh, Chancellor Schultz about the tanks. Mm -hmm. He was very clear. He said, all you need to do is send a few tanks and then we'll send tanks. It seemed to take weeks for the administration to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but they did. I wish they had done yeah. it, you know, in days instead of weeks. But at the end of the day, we're talking about, you know, maybe it took them 15 or 20 days longer than it should have. Um, but we are now getting the tanks. The other thing that's happened is over the course of this war, because the war has changed, and frankly, mainly because Ukraine has done so well, their needs on the ground have changed. Tanks are primarily an offensive weapon. And so we weren't giving tanks to Ukraine uh, when they were just trying to defend themselves against the uh, Russian aggression. Now that they're taking back territory, they need offensive weapons. And so that's why some of these, these needs have shifted. Yep. And going forward uh, for this year, what do you think the administration needs to do to... Um you know, work more closely with our allies. Uh, you know, we have the NATO summit coming up in uh, Lithuania this summer. Um, it's going to be a, a very important summit since it'll be the first NATO gathering at the, you know, heads of state, heads of government level uh, since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine the second time last year. Um, there's a big question mark about the future of NATO. Should it be right. uh, now in the Indo-Pacific dealing with China as well? Should it just remain uh, in the North Atlantic uh, region, uh, playing a more defensive nature? Uh, has Russia's uh, large-scale invasion of Ukraine injected new life into the alliance? Uh, what do you think about the future of the alliance and what this administration should be doing leading up to the summit? Well, it, it, it's a great question. Um, I mean, it's remarkable how effective NATO has been over the years, but it's perhaps even more remarkable that when Putin started this war to undermine NATO, to take yeah. power away from NATO, he's done the exact opposite, which yeah. is makes NATO stronger than it's ever been. The first thing that we need to do is reaffirm that strength and the commitment of our allies uh, to make sure everyone is on board, still on the same page, with getting Ukraine what they need to win. 
So coming out of this summit, we want to see renewed commitment to that uh, shared goal. Um, because of course, there's all you know different um, in different countries, different factions, just like we have right here yeah. um, with far right Republicans. There are factions trying to erode that support for the war. Uh, the second thing that I think is really critical is to have a serious conversation about how this ends. You know, General Petraeus very famously in Iraq asked this question in the middle of the invasion, tell me how this ends. Yes. And it is a really tough question. It was a tough question to answer in Iraq. Yeah. I would argue it's an even harder question to answer in Ukraine, but we have to wrestle with that and we have to have real active discussions in the context of this agreement that we are going to see Ukraine through to victory to understand how does that actually play out what does it look like and how can NATO support that? Now, is it a difficult question for, uh, how does this end in, in Ukraine? Is that a difficult question for Americans because we don't have boots on the ground there. We are not the ones who are fighting and dying. It's our Ukrainian partners who are, are doing the fighting and, and paying the price. And ultimately it's, it's up to the Ukrainians to determine how they would define victory or how long they would want to keep fighting or how long or wondering how this will end. Do you think it's because we don't have that skin in the game like they do? No, I think it's actually more for, for more fundamental reasons. But let me, you, you bring up a good point that I want to clarify about what I just said. I am not suggesting that NATO should impose terms on Ukraine. Oh, yeah, we of all course. agree yeah, that no, Ukraine course, has yeah. to decide how this ends. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean that as the primary backers of this effort, we're not invested in exactly what that looks like, how we get there, what the timeline is for that. We have to be having these... Um, discussions, even if it's um, even if it's behind the scenes. But I think fundamentally, to answer your question, the reason why this is so hard to see is that there's sort of you know two diametrically opposed conditions here. We want Ukraine to win, um, to make it clear to the world that Putin, you tried this war of aggression and you've lost, and yet we're dealing um, with an autocrat who can't afford to lose because he might lose his regime. So how do you reconcile those two things? That's that's, that's very difficult. But I want to get back to your question just about the, what should come out of the summit, because the first thing I said is reaffirm our unity yeah. um, in, in seeing Ukraine to victory. Number two, have the discussions so, so we're actually grappling with this very difficult question of, of where does this go and how does, it, um, how does it play out in the future. But then the third thing is to reaffirm uh, our unity worldwide against this kind of aggression which specifically means uh, China-Taiwan. Now, I've been an advocate for several years now of essentially establishing a kind of NATO in the Pacific, mm -hmm. uh, re, uh, reinvigorating um, our diplomacy in that region to try to build the kind of alliance for that part of the world that has served us so well in Europe. And it's very challenging, right? I mean, two of our key allies, South Korea and Japan, just don't get along, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think we need to do that. But if we are going to deter uh, Xi Jinping from invading Taiwan, NATO's got to have skin in that game too. And I think reaffirming that commitment is important going forward. Because look, at the end of the day, for everything that's going well in Ukraine and for all the things we've been talking about that uh, is really good news from where we were uh, watching this invasion start uh, a little over a year ago, we have to admit deterrence failed. Yeah. And I don't think any of us want to see deterrence fail in the Pacific. 
And of course, uh, next year, uh, in 2024, we'll celebrate NATO's 75th uh, birthday and the summit will be here in the United States. So I think it offers a unique opportunity for American leadership in Congress, in the White House, to you know, get what we would like on the agenda for the future of NATO. Um, we talked about uh, Ukraine uh, being able to win this conflict, uh, win this war. Uh, I, I mentioned that it's really up to the Ukrainians at the end of the day to determine how that is defined. But of course, as you pointed out, Congressman, because the, the American taxpayer is contributing so much, we should have a say in that as well. Um, how, how does uh, Congressman Moulton define victory in Ukraine? What well, would you like to see as a successful outcome? Look, I, I want to restore Ukraine's territorial integrity. Of course, including um, Crimea, um, of course, right? And, and look, there's debate over Crimea. Um, uh, there's some interesting history around that. Uh, but again, ultimately, if that's what the Ukrainians want, then that's what they should get. I mean, this is, this is ultimately a, uh, a Ukrainian question. They've made it very clear that restoring their territorial integrity uh, is important. But we do have to somehow um, define the terms of, of Russia's exit from this war. Again, this is fundamentally... Um, a Ukrainian question, but it has huge implications for us too, yeah. right? Uh, and so uh, while we can all agree that um, Ukraine, Ukrainians are the ones fighting and dying in this conflict, they're the ones who should determine uh, the terms of, uh, of an eventual settlement. I like to say that the terms of Russia's surrender, yeah. it, it does have implications for all the rest of us. So answering questions about what is the future of Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis NATO, uh, Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the European Union? What does reconstruction uh, look like in, in Ukraine? I mean, these are very important questions uh, uh, for us to answer. And, you know, it would be brilliant if some way, if we could find some way to make it very clear to Putin and the world that he is lost and you're not going to try this again, while also uh, somehow um, enabling the Russians to uh, withdraw uh, without doing something more um, more rash or, uh, you know, having, I mean, I don't know that it's good for the stability of the world if the Russian regime collapses, for example, and talk about nuclear pro proliferation among, yeah. among one risk. So, you know, saying that we want abject defeat of the Russians and the whole regime collapses is probably not what we actually want. But these are important questions to ask and it's an important debate to have. Yeah, and if we may not want it, that doesn't mean it may not happen. That's right. Uh, so are, we have to be prepared for all uh, contingencies. I mean, there's a strange way in which we absolutely want Ukraine to win. We want Russia to lose, but we don't actually want Russia to lose too badly. This is tough stuff. Yep. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today on this very important issue. I really appreciate uh, you taking so much time. So this thank you. This has been you. fun. Thank you so Thanks. much. And thank you so much for watching this event today. If you're interested in this topic or others, uh, please check out our work at hudson.org. Thank you.